Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our uh, Friday morning Ask the Expert session, or Ask Dr. Shriver session is what I call it. Um, good to see everyone again. I hope you're enjoying your, your coffee, uh, getting ready to go into the office and seeing the patients, uh, or wherever you work, maybe going to a school. Uh, it may be in Connecticut, maybe Massachusetts, maybe in other parts of the country. So welcome. It's been uh, eight months and counting, I think, John, maybe a little bit longer than that. And uh, we, we've made some great progress, unfortunately, for the past uh, two, three weeks and going into the next two, three months, it's gonna be really tough. I think John will share the numbers, uh, but stay strong, stay focused. Uh, we will make it through this. I think individually, we can keep safe. Uh, as a group, we need to make some strides. As a healthcare system, we'll be moving forward. Uh, we're prepared uh, here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, we have uh, all the processes in place and we'll be able to make it through. And I know in your office, you will too, because you've learned a lot about how to take care of this. So again, my message to you is, is you know, don't fall back, stay strong. Uh, you can make it through, you can help your patients, help the community, and we will continue to do that for you. Tomorrow is the gala here at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. It's gonna be virtual, completely virtual. The first time we do that, uh, we're very hopeful that we can bring some money into the medical center to be able to uh, maintain our focus and keep our mission going. And some of you are joining us. Uh, if you still wanna join us and you're a member of Connecticut Children's, there's a way to still do that, so let us know. And uh, so with that, I'm gonna ask uh, uh, Dr. Shriver to begin uh, the presentation. And then uh, once uh, he's uh, completed his presentation, I'll introduce our speaker uh, from Vermont, Chip Hart. He's up in the, uh, in the warm uh, weather of uh, beautiful Vermont. And uh, Chip will get you back in about uh, 15, 20 minutes, depending on how long Dr. Shriver takes with his update. So John, please. Thank you, Juan. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I do want to start off before we get going. Uh, Wednesday uh, was Veterans Day, and um, I uh, always think about it because um, my father was uh, in uh, the 82nd Airborne in uh, World War II and was a medic and uh, took me as a kid to the cemetery of o Omaha and be the uh, cemetery in Normandy. And it's, uh, it's a sea of white crosses and stars of kids who died fighting for our ability to vote, like 150 million people voted uh, peacefully in the United States in the last election. So all of you veterans out there, I was in the Air Force, uh, thank you for what you've done and uh, everyone planning on serving, thank you for your sacrifice to do that. It's very meaningful and as our election showed, has true meaning for America. Now, uh, once again, um, I'm having trouble advancing. Well, all right. Um, I have a lot to tell you today, and uh, we're going to move quickly because we have an interesting speaker who's going to talk about the economics of some of uh, COVID poor practices. But um, we are in a very unique time. Uh, there's bright light at the end of the tunnel, but we have a very rough few months to get there. Um, fasten your seatbelt and wear your mask. Um, I wanted to show this picture. I just was cruising to find seatbelt pictures, and there's one here of George Bush being driven by Putin. And uh, no one has a seatbelt except for Condoleezza Rice is fastening her seatbelt with the arrow there you can see. So, so I, I, I thought that was amusing. I'm not sure I would want Putin as my driver for anything uh, right now. But um, uh, that was back in the day when there was some summit and uh, Putin's driving the vehicle. So I thought that was amusing. But uh, we're in it for a rough few months. And uh, that said, we know what to do. Common sense public health measures matter wearing a mask, physical distancing, washing your hands, not going into a room of 27 unmasked people. Uh, these are important and they make a difference. Wear a mask and save your grandmother. I mean, this is not hard. It's not political. It uh, has absolutely nothing to do with politics. It has to do with mathematics of this virus, virus spread. Now, um, the United States is heading remarkably to 200,000 new cases per day. I think I can't even keep up. It was 140,000, 150,000 in the last day. This is absolutely unacceptable and preventable. It's going to lead to inundation of our hospitals and deaths that are preventable. Uh, this, in my mind, uh, shows an enormous lack of regional leadership in a variety of areas in the Midwest right now and uh, should be for all of us unacceptable. The death rate is starting to climb. We have 1,000 deaths a few days ago. We're going to hit 2,000 deaths a day shortly. This adds up very quickly. And uh, I don't know, those of you who listened to NPR this morning, we're just talking about it. They interviewed the head of the ICU in Billings, Montana. They have 20-bed ICU with 44 patients. 
She interviewed for 20 minutes and it brought tears to your eyes. Uh, it was preventable to have these patients in the ICU. Many of them are not elderly. She told us about many of them are middle-aged, 50-year-olds uh, who are passing away. And uh, we need to understand this as a country and speak out. It is not acceptable in one of the most advanced countries in the world to have this happen. We are, um, again, I think the perspective, we tend, I watch the evening news now, there's nothing about international news. We're the worst in the United States is the worst in the world for confirmed new cases. We're the worst, it's just, these are facts. From Johns Hopkins, you can see Poland, Spain, France, UK, Germany, Russia, India, more cases than India yesterday. Uh, we are the worst in the world for new confirmed cases and we're the worst in the world for cumulative deaths. So in my view, these are unacceptable figures and we need to bend these curves very hard the next few months until a vaccine is available, which it will be. We will fix this, but we don't have to have a train wreck on the way to the vaccine. The Midwest outbreak is concurrently uncontrolled. Uh, North and South Dakota, as you've heard, if you listen to any of these news reports now, uh, are out of control epidemic. The governors have not instituted common sense public health measures and the hospitals and ICUs are filled. Iowa is now uh, becoming a close second. We have friends in Iowa who no longer leave their house. Um, it's, it's really a very, very difficult situation in Iowa, Wisconsin heading there, Montana, Wyoming, the entire Midwest and upper Midwest. This is where North Dakota is. Um, they had about a thousand new cases. It's a teeny state, by the way. It has about the same population as Vermont. Uh, almost a thousand new cases. And you can see the trends, 84% increase in deaths. That's just the beginning because it lags about four weeks. So, um, you know, real challenges uh, in a relatively rural state. And here are some counties in North Dakota showing the average daily new cases per 100,000. One county had 291 daily new cases per 100,000. I mean, these are 404. These are astronomical figures showing that 10, 20% of the population are probably infected. And uh, this is gonna lead to complete overwhelming of the healthcare system of the Dakotas, it already has. Now, locally, we are in a resurgent situation, although in much better shape than these other states. This comes from our Connecticut.gov site from yesterday. And, and we're getting uh, almost 2000 new cases a day. Um, uh, was around 1,500 yesterday and a 4.7% positivity rate. Now, I believe that's low. Uh, that was uh, reported by Connecticut yesterday, but it's probably, in my view, about 6%, 7% if you look at the numbers. The deaths are starting to creep up. They're still low, uh, but we're going to need to keep very close watch on this. And, and we're blessed um, in that the governance in New England, regardless of party, seems to understand that public health measures and consistent leadership do make a difference to keep this under control. This is our Connecticut uh, scenario by county. And you can see uh, we've got uh, some problems in Fairfield, New Haven, and Hartford County. And this actually creeps right up into Massachusetts in the Springfield area. And so um, again, we, are, we know this is all data. These data are probably a couple of weeks old because of a two week incubation period. This will get worse before it gets better. We know what to do. Uh, lead our patients and families and other providers to take a deep breath. This has been a marathon, not a hundred yard dash. We're in the last 10 miles of the marathon. Take a deep breath, wear your mask, tell people what they need to do and be consistent. We will get through this, but this is going to get worse before it gets better. The Massachusetts resurgence uh, is a little uglier than Connecticut. There's about 2,000 to 2,500 cases a day now in Massachusetts, like 2,600 on Wednesday. Hospitalizations are up, uh, as is the death rate. Now, again, uh, Governor Baker in Massachusetts just instituted a number of restrictive measures, but they're very mild so far. And the state is watching this carefully. And I, I have no doubt, unfortunately, there'll probably be, need to be other restrictions moving forward. This is percent positivity by PCR in Massachusetts. And by the way, I showed you last week a map of all the towns with red and green. They took that down from their website. I got they, so many complaints from the towns that were red. So they put this up, which is dark blue. I mean, I don't know what the difference is, but you can see there's some townships that have three to 20% positivity rate in Eastern Massachusetts, particularly in the New Bedford area on the Rhode Island border is the worst and, and Rhode Island's bad. 
So this is very high positivity rates, and in my view, probably will end up requiring a partial shutdown in some of these regions. The western part of the state is still doing relatively well, except for Springfield, uh, which probably has a higher positivity rate than Connecticut right now. So that's one of the reasons when we commute from Massachusetts at, at work, we have to be very cautious. I want to update on testing. We had a lot of questions about this last week, and it's complicated. And one of the reasons it's complicated, again, has been some of the decision-making process. Instead of having one or two standardized ways to do this and then having the private market take those ways and develop it, we have 100 different ways that this is being done, and it's very complicated. The nucleic acid amplification tests, NAT, which are essentially PCR-related tests, and the ELISA antigen test are the two ones out there. And um, we, we want to talk about this. Reverse transcriptase PCR works. Remember, it's an RNA virus. So you've got to transcribe the RNA to DNA, and that's the reverse transcriptase. And then you get the DNA, use DNA polymerase and a thermocycler, and you greatly amplify the DNA, and you get a positive. It's highly sensitive. The RT-PCR test is the best test. It's highly sensitive for very low RNA copy numbers. And so this has been the gold standard. The ELISA test is an antigen test. It's much less sensitive, probably around 70%. So if you have a negative, it's possible that it's actually a positive and you need to back that up with a PCR. If you have a positive in the antigen test, it's most likely positive and you're good to go with that information. So this is, you have a plate, you have an antigen on the plate, you coat it with some antigen or antibody that captures the, uh, the um, antigen from the virus, and then it turns a color. Uh, it's a sandwich elisa and turns a color in the laboratory, and that's how they detect antigen, the piece of the virus. It's not detecting the nucleic acids. So the ELISA is not as sensitive as nucleic acid amplification tests, and the NATs are better. So we do not use the ELISA for virus antigen detection at children's hospital for patients or staff. And we do not recommend it to rule out infection because a negative needs to be backed up by a PCR. We use the more sensitive reverse transcriptase PCR. Now, the problem is because we've approached this as a market problem, not as a public health problem, not all NAT tests are specifically RT-PCR, and some rapid NAT tests have lower sensitivity to detect viral RNA. Now, I know you can't see this well, but I pulled FDA data. Apparently, it's there. I had to dig around to find this. Well, they actually have a standardized RNA detectable unit, and they've tested. These are, these are all the different nucleic acid amplification tests that are in the market. And, and in many ways, this is crazy. I mean, you really, how, how do you know what's good, you know, if you're out there? So, if you look, you can see that Quest could detect 1,800 RNA detectable units. That's just a standardized thing the FDA did. They diluted up some RNA from the virus and they tested all these kits. Pretty good. And you can see Perkin-Elmer, there's some others that are quite good uh, in terms of very sensitive. And you'll also see that Roche Molecular, which is LIOT, which we are also using at Children's Hospital, is highly sensitive on par with the Quest Diagnostic lab-based RT-PCR. You'll notice, however, Cepheid, which is a rapid one at the bottom, it's a rapid uh, PCR, is much less sensitive and required a lot more uh, RNA to be detectable. And it's one of the reasons those rapid tests are not as good. And I didn't show you here, but there's an Abbott ID now that's much less sensitive than the Cepheid. So we have to be careful. Not all the nucleic acid amplification tests are sensitive. And we have to be smart about this. And unfortunately, it's very confused because there's so many out there. So the FDA says that RT-PCR remains the gold standard for persons with symptoms of COVID, persons who are close contacts of COVID, for people without symptoms who work in a high-risk setting, are identified part of an outbreak, and a close contact cannot be released early from quarantine based on the ne a negative viral test, because that just means you're negative that day. So this is from the FDA, and I think these are very good guidelines. So I wanted to summarize some testing for you today. I know there'll be questions about this, and we may not have all the answers, and I'll refer back to the FDA test of all those NAT tests, looking how sensitive they are. Now, the vaccine. Uh, 
it's very promising. Dr. Fauci actually mentioned today uh, on an interview that there's very bright light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccine probably works very well. However, this was a press release from Pfizer and no data have been released showing the efficacy. And um, I think that it's the efficacy they claimed was 90%, fewer cases in the uh, recipients, but we don't know how old those people are. We don't know, have they predisposed conditions or not? Are they high risk, low risk? We don't have the data to really understand this number. And so um, we are gonna need to be, I think, measured. And one of the things I commit to you all, because we are going to be the spokespeople to our community about immunization, is to review the data and share it with you when the data are available about the various vaccines that come out. They are going to work. But we as a professional community need to understand the data and be able to look our patients and families in the eye and recommend these immunizations. So we, that is our commitment from Children's Hospital to you. When we have the data, we will share it in one of these sessions as soon as it is available. Now there's a fascinating study on nature that just came out from Chicago. And what they, the, the hypothesis of this study, it's really good for us to guide us in this very five alarm fire we are in right now. This study suggested that if we focus on certain areas of spread, as opposed to lockdowns, we will actually reduce infections. And what they found here, they actually did cell phone data and a variety of things to track people, that if you look here, and actually I'm, I'm, I'm gonna move up because I'm having a little trouble seeing it. Um, hopefully you can see it on your screens. The highest risk areas for spread were restaurants, fitness centers, cafes and snack bars, coffee shops, sorry, actually hotels, um, religious organizations where people are singing, physician offices, sorry, grocery stores. So if we can, and this is, you know, our governments look at these data to try to understand how can you modulate and mitigate this and not shut down the economy. So this study actually got some press today in, in various papers, and I think may be an important guide for us that we don't have to lock down the whole economy as we try to get the epidemic, which is now national, under better control until an immunization is available. So this was in Nature just a couple of days ago, and I think will be very good public health guidance. Oh, and by the way, the lowest risk were new car dealerships. So if you're looking to buy a car, and you know because it's outside, right? You go outside, you look the car over, um, and everyone's wearing a mask now, and then when you go inside for the finances, you're sitting across a desk from one person, when you're buying a car. So apparently buying a new car is pretty low risk. So there you go. If now's the time to do that. Now, children, and it's worth looking at that graph again, as we plan ahead in this state, I have no doubt the governor and DPH are looking at those data right now to try to modulate what we're gonna to do to get our resurgence under control. There was a rapid increase in the number of children infected. These are data from the Children's Hospital Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, and Almost a million children in the United States have been infected. It's really quite remarkable. It's about 11% of all cases. There's 73,000 new, 73, new cases in one week in children. Uh, and children in testing are making up between 5 and 17% of total state totals uh, through the country. Hospitalizations, about 1% to 3% of total hospitalizations are children. It's not zero. People need to understand that. And uh, about, it's, it's very variable between 0.6 and 6% of all children infected become hospitalized. And mortality is not zero. Uh, it's about 0.1%, sort of what influenza is in a bad year. So I think um, we unfortunately are gonna see a lot more a long-term outcome in kids. We don't know what it's gonna be and probably some more missy cases, inflammatory disease cases across the country as these numbers climb. We shall see. Now, uh, are children less likely to have severe disease because they have pre-existing antibodies? It's a busy slide, but I think it's really important. It came out in science this week. And what they found, they looked for coronavirus antibodies in... Uh, oh, okay. They, watch him on the screen. They, um, they, I was trying to see the slide. They uh, um, found, and you can see at the bottom where there are red dots up there, and also on the right where there's green looking at immunity, Many children have pre-existing coronavirus antibodies that cross-react with SARS-CoV-2. And it may be part of the explanation as to why they've been relatively spared. And this is probably from infection with other coronaviruses. Uh, so a very interesting data. 
I don't know if it's the full explanation as to why children seem to be less likely to have severe disease, but I think we're starting to tease away some of the reasons why. So again, you can see they have found antibodies in a variety of children. And again, those red bars on the right show antibody response to SARS-CoV-2 in children who've never been infected with COVID-19. The good, the bad, the ugly. Now I knew I had made it with this analogy because Lester Holt on NBC News several nights ago said, let me review the good, the bad, and the ugly for today. So I knew, I knew he'd probably been tuning in to our talks here in Connecticut and picked it up and imitation is the best form of flattery. This is French. This was an internationally famous movie. Those of you who have never seen it. Uh, le bon, la brute, le truant, okay? Um, and the good, bad, the ugly. Unfortunately, I have a lot of bad and ugly. The United States has an uncontrolled SARS-CoV-2 epidemic, which is probably the worst in the world with no national plan and politicization of common sense public health measures have made progress difficult. These are facts. It's not politics, okay? You don't wear a mask, you're more likely to infect yourself and somebody else and someone will die from that. New cases and deaths are increasing. It is going to get worse before it gets better. It's gonna be winter shortly and moving indoors will exacerbate this outbreak. Now that said, New England has a resurgence of cases, but strong governance and public health acceptance will probably mitigate the situation here. And again, I'm confident in our governance and in the people of New England who understand difficult measures, but things that will save lives are necessary right now. Vaccine development and new understanding of the pathogen are proceeding at breakneck pace. There is no question we'll have multiple vaccines available by next year. Certainly by the end of this year, there'll be an RNA vaccine. Um, it requires negative 80 storage. I do not believe the RNA vaccines will be worldwide useful, but they will be very useful for aborting the epidemic in the United States and developed countries. And I believe by the end of the year, essential personnel will begin to be immunized and the broad population in the spring. It will be critical. Polls have shown that only 60% of healthcare providers will accept a vaccine first round and 50% of the general population. It will be critical for us as healthcare professionals and anyone else out there to review the data and if the data look good to share that and be positive about the likelihood of, of a highly efficacious vaccine in saving lives. But we will review the data and we will be there with you to do that as soon as it is available. Thank you for your attention today and I look forward to our next speaker. Thank you, John, for a very sobering and informative uh, presentation. And let's move on now to uh, uh, Chip Hart, uh, who is joining us from uh, uh, up in Vermont, I think central Vermont, uh, Winoski uh, Falls. I don't know exactly where that is, but it must be absolutely beautiful up there. And uh, he's going to give us a talk on the business impact of COVID-19 in pediatric practices. Uh, Chip uh, graduated from Middlebury, uh, Middlebury College, uh, Bachelor of Arts in English and Economics uh, in that beautiful part of the country. And he has been advising uh, pediatric practices uh, on how to get through this. Uh, I thank uh, Ken Spiegelman for uh, finding him. Uh, Ken always finds some fantastic speakers, and I'm really looking forward to his presentation and some insights that will be very helpful to our uh, practice and pediatricians on how to get through this. Of course, one of the solutions would be to move to Vermont, where they have the lowest rates in the world right now. But I don't think they'll let us in, unfortunately. So, uh, Chip, if you can uh, go ahead and take it on, and then we'll have questions at the end of your presentation. Sure. Can you hear me all right? Yes, we can. Okay, great. Thanks. That's a, actually a fairly tough presentation to follow. Um, not just the nature of the information, but the quality of it. Um, I found myself in the middle of that saying, I want to get a copy of that to share with my parents. Yes, Vermont is generally pretty safe right now, but we're struggling with our own outbreaks. And um, everyone here, the, the uh, anxiety has ratcheted up in the last week. And um, I'm like, for example, I have to go pick up one of my kids in college uh, next week. And um, just the virtue of crossing the state line into Hanover to pick him up and bring him home means our entire family has to quarantine for uh, seven days and then get a test, um, which uh, on one hand sounds very annoying. On the other hand, um, given that I've already lost family members to this is uh, just a sobering reminder of the work that we have left to do. Um, so anyway, sorry, I'm just, I was distracted by your, your pre quality of presentation. That was fantastic. Um, 
just a quick summary, even before I give my um, little disclaimer. Uh, I am here, I think, because um, I do a lot of what I think people would label pediatric practice management. And I know a number of people on this presentation today, because I went down through the participant list, I recognize a lot of you, have um, been part of our COVID um, webinar series, the one I do with Paul Vincieri, and, and you're part of the COVID forum. Um, and the, what that is, for those of you who don't know, is back in April, Paul Vincieri and I, he is another pediatric practice management uh, consultant. Um, he's just, a, you know, a peer in our, in our niche uh, area. He called me up and said, hey, are you getting a lot of phone calls about practices, not knowing what to do about this COVID thing? I said, yeah. And, and he said, you know, rather than answer the same phone call 200 times, why don't we do a, why don't we do a webinar and just save ourselves some time? And that, that morphed into a weekly event from April through uh, September. And starting September, we started going bi-weekly and now we're doing about monthly. Um, we would get as many as 1,800 people a night. Uh, and I know a lot of you were there. And the COVID forum has about 3,500 people in it. And these are just pediatricians and uh, office managers. So I mean, it's a very distinct group of people. And my goal here today in the next 20 minutes is to hammer through some of the lessons that we've learned, um, given the advantage that we have of looking nationally. Um, I, I think the, the perspective that you're getting here from Connecticut Children's about what's happening in Connecticut is really profound. It's, it's, I wish more states had that sort of targeted delivery. There are a couple states I've worked with. Um, Vermont is one. Um, Alabama does it. Um, you guys do it. Um, you, know, you, you know, South Carolina a little bit, Pennsylvania. But... Um, a lot, there are big parts. I mean, as, as you pointed out, in, in the Midwest, I don't think there is a South Dakota uh, convention of um, smart COVID reaction to uh, on a pediatric level. I just don't think it exists. And so um, I, you know, I have the benefit of seeing what's happening in all these states and seeing what's working, seeing what's failing. And, and that's, what, that's sort of the messaging I want to bring to everyone today. So hopefully everyone can see my, my first slide. And here we go. All right, so number one, Here's my faculty disclosure. Over the past 12 months, I've had the following relationships. I'm employed by PCC. We're a pediatric EHR. I do consulting as part of that work. Um, I do not intend to discuss any unapproved or investigative use of a commercial product or device in my presentation. It would be weird if I did, because um, I'm not going to be talking about clinical things that way. All right, so here's the first lesson from COVID. You ready? Number one, our existing system is fragile. It took us two weeks in March to discover that our entire economic system in the United States has been on thin ice forever, that literally millions of people are living paycheck to paycheck, that even worse, private physician practices and hospitals were living on the thinnest of financial margins, um, that we it, it only takes... Uh, just a few Jenga pieces to be yanked out of our construct for, um, for us to almost feel like there has been a, a, a revolution in the United States. I mean, there, and there has been. Um, it's pretty clear that we have been basking in the privilege of our first world country for a long time. We have been, we've, the, the dangers that are actually around us have been hidden from us and we have not been planning. That is actually one of the key lessons of COVID is that we need to do a lot more planning than we have been. Um, and right now, as everyone scrambles or everyone's really hoping emotionally to get back to the way things were, I really wanted to impart on people that the way things were is forever gone. The sooner we understand that there will be no time like it was before COVID, this, that is the sooner we can actually build a stronger and better place. So first lesson we learned is, wow, it doesn't take much for practices, for medicine, for education. Um, you know, go back to the toilet, the great toilet paper run of 2020. It doesn't take much for distribution to crash in this country. Here's the other lesson we've learned. Science is really, really hard. And uh, just the, the, the presentation this morning uh, is, is a perfect example of that. Here we have this incredibly educated audience with 160 people who are actually trained in the science of what we're discussing. And it's still not perfectly clear what's going on. It's not even remotely perfectly clear. 
and there's great debate about what's happening. And, and, and that is filtering down to, in, um, on a practical level, to a great disagreement about how we should be reacting to um, COVID. Now, we just witnessed what is uh, probably a perfect example of the difference between New England and most of the rest of the country. It's a very practical presentation that said, wear a mask. Stop being a jackass, frankly, and stop infecting people. And um, that message is totally lost on huge swaths of the United States. Um, I will be obnoxious enough to say that about 70 million people don't believe in that message. And it does boil back to this concept right here, that science is hard. It's not easy. And again, we have been basking in the privilege of um, living in the United States, and we've been largely protected from um, disease and, and uh, environmental concerns. And we are really going to have to get back to focusing on what it's going to take to get healthy again. I, I've said it myself, you know, if, you, if I can rewound a year or two or how many times I've said, man, can you imagine living 50 years ago or 100 years ago or before antibiotics or before, you know, before great pain management? Well, we're kind of getting a really good flavor of what it was like to live when you had really significant healthcare concerns that dominated your life. There was a reason why the life expectancy was 35, 40, 50, 60. It's, it's only in the last few decades, it's only in the last century that we, um, we've been able to breathe the sigh of relief and clearly we were mistaken. All right, but let's keep going. Um, because I am going to tie this into what it means to be a pediatrician right now. So this is, I think, the single biggest threat. It's not COVID itself that it presents the biggest threat. It is disinformation. And fundamentally, pediatricians' position as a trusted source is threatened right now. So your role as pediatricians is to take the incredibly difficult science that's being performed and fixed and updated and relearned, you know, and, and that's, the, that's the beauty of science and the scientific method is that it, when it's wrong, it says we were wrong and it keeps moving, okay? It admits failure, it admits defeat, and it fixes things. That is science. It is your job to take science and deliver it to people who aren't scientific, your patients and your families, in a way that they can understand. And right now, you have politicians, you have um, the public, you have websites, you have other countries, you have Facebook, you have Twitter, all undermining your scientific validity. And I'm going to further say, this is also being done by some of your peers. There's a movement right now by pharmacies to take over the immunization business. And they are saying, I, I, I'm, I'm participating in these meetings, okay? So I'm, this is firsthand knowledge. They are saying that pharmacists are uniquely positioned to be the trusted source of, uh, of, of immunization in this country, which to me sounds insane. I, I hope everyone listening is like, what is he talking about? But it's the truth. And, and here's the thing. When the COVID vaccines do come out, and I, am, I will admit, so far I'm, I'm surprised by how well that is going. We still know that they are going to be ineffective. It, like they're not going to be perfectly effective. And they're also not going to, that someone is going to have harm caused. Even if it's not because of the vaccine, it is going to be associated with it somewhere. Millions of people are going to get a vaccine. And if, if there's a one in a million chance that some, someone's head blows up, that's going to happen. And the anti-vaxxers are going to publicize those events like never before. So the threat to you and your fundamental role in our community is threatened. So it's not COVID. It's the, it's the results of COVID. It, it's the, it's the um, consequences beyond literally catching that, that disease that, that I think pediatricians need to worry about. Um, what else have we learned? Pediatricians are the backbone of this country. All right, COVID hit, but nothing else related to children could stop. We still have to educate children. We still need to give well visits. We still need to screen them for, for um, child abuse and hearing and vision. You are the most important part of the medical delivery system. Because yes, I, I'm, I'm right now, I don't know if you've seen the, the news, but our, um, our large health care, our large hospital here in town Got attacked by um, got attacked by uh, uh, you know a computer virus and it's it's been sort of at half mass for the last two weeks. Um, it's horrifying. 
Um, you know, it's one of these um, crypto viruses. And um, I, I, I have a coworker who literally woke up from back surgery last week or a week and a half ago to the, all the nurses saying, oh my God, the system is down, okay? And um, my, my mother had eye surgery. <laughs> like this, this is affecting people I know personally. And there are surely people who, in the middle of cancer treatments who've been affected massively. I, I, absolutely true. But by and large, okay, the work that gets done in the hospital, all right, is not as important long-term as the work that gets done by pediatricians. It might be a very non-PC thing to say, but I, I firmly believe the work that pediatricians do today has a payoff that's 20 years from now. You are the only people who are fighting cancer. Not, not fighting cancer, let me restate that, I'm sorry. But you're the only people who are preventing cancer. The hospital, and I realize I'm being hosted by a hospital, so forgive me, but the hospital depends on cancer for revenue. Pediatricians try to prevent cancer. You give an HPV vaccine. You are at the front end. If, if you can keep kids from smoking, if you can keep kids from drinking, that will do more to prevent cancer than all the internists, family doctors, adult medicine specialists ever will. If you can reduce obesity, if you can manage asthma, okay, you are going to do more for our society and the rest of the country than all the adult stuff. By the time you're 20 or whatever the magic number is, by the time you're 25, your determinants of health, social or otherwise, are already set. So you are doing the most important work, medical work in this country right now, and we need you to stay healthy figuratively and literally. All right. What else have we learned? This is the most revolutionary moment in pediatric history, period. There is going to be a line where it, everything happened before COVID and everything happened after COVID. I'm going to talk about some of those, what some of those things are, but let's not pretend that we're going to go back to pre-COVID times. It doesn't exist. Everything about your practice from telemedicine, which I'm going to talk about in a second, to PPE, to the way you schedule patients, to the way you prioritize things. Um, we, we haven't even learned all the changes that are going to happen to your practice. Um, the way you bill and, and, and charge people is going, to, is going to change. The way you're paid by insurance company is going to change. Um, that, yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. Everything. This is the most revolutionary moment in pediatric history. There's, I, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I can't name a time where things have changed like this, even remotely as much as what happened on March 13th. So just, I don't want to say embrace it because it's you know, not necessarily great news, but there are silver linings in here. You are going to have to get better at your jobs. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, because I do this for a living, I am a pediatric practice management consultant. As poorly paid as pediatricians are, you're still in the 1%. You're still in the fraction of 1%. A full-time pediatrician, even with 20, 30% Medicaid, can generate $600,000, $800,000 of revenue. That's crazy. There are very few other pr professions who can do that. All right. And so you were living in a bubble. You may not have felt it. You may not have realized it. But look around. Look at the unemployment claims over the last six months. Okay. You're not unemployed if you're a pediatrician. And you have got to look, realize your, your status and the importance of what you do. I mean, the opening, the opening comments today about Veterans Day were really uh, hit home. And I'm going to say that the work that, veteran, or the work that people are, serve in the armed forces for us is so incredibly important and so overlooked. And as pediatricians and as physicians, you're next in line. And as the people who work for pediatricians, you're next in line. The work that you do is crucial for the fabric of the United States. Anyway, let me keep going, please. Sorry. Um, preventive care rules. Well visits are consistent. Sick visits are ephemeral. If you've do, it, there's no pediatric practice in this country, right, who survived on sick visit volume over the last six months. All right. The well visit work that you do is the distinctive competency of pediatricians taking care of children and making sure that their vision is good, their hearing is good, that they're not depressed, that, they, that their, um, development, uh, their developmental um, uh, circumstances are normal, that, that um, you're managing ADHD, you're looking at obesity, you're looking at asthma, you are turning these small humans into healthy adults. That is so incredibly important. 
And it is one of the few things that you can do that the minute clinics and the pharmacies and Walmart and Walgreens and the retail-based clinics and can't steal from you. So I am, I, Bright Futures from the AAP should be your Bible. And everything you should do should be pinned around, how do I keep an eye on my flock, my flock of children? I am their shepherd. How do I get them safely through COVID into their uh, adolescence, into their adulthood with healthy behaviors, good eating habits, healthy screen time? And that, that work you do is so profoundly important. It is also profoundly important for the success of your practice. You are not going to stay in business selling COVID testing. All right, but you may stay in business by making sure all of your kids have their well visits. Another lesson we've learned, telemedicine is here to stay. Um, I have the data. If you've been to my webinars, you can see it. I will tell you on March, the week of March 13th or the week before March 13th, the average volume of telemedicine visits nationally for pediatricians was about 0.3%. Um, by the middle of April, it was up to 45%. Right now, it's hovering around, uh, I don't even know, I haven't looked the last two weeks, but it's uh, about 20% of well visit or of, of sick visits, pardon me, nationally are still being done using a telemedicine code. Um, telemedicine is not going away. And there are people here on this, on this um, seminar right now who love telemedicine. There are people here who hate it. But regardless of which camp you're in, let me tell you, it is not going away and it is unequivocal. It is definitely better for certain people and or certain clinical circumstances. And you've got to figure out how to embrace it. You've got to roll telemedicine into your practice. The uh, millennials who are having children, they like holding their phone and talking to you. They don't like having to leave work. They don't like having to leave their homes right now. They don't like having to come into your potentially dangerous practice and sit in a waiting room for half an hour. They like being able to hit a button, talk to you on the phone, get the advice they need. And boy, do we want them talking to you and not to Google. All right. Um, that, that's what they like. Now, there is a huge amount of work to do with telemedicine. It is not being paid properly. The fact that the payers keep trying to put de end dates on when they're going to pay it is, in my mind, should be criminal. All right. It's insane. The advice that you are giving to parents looking them, eye, looking them in the eye and the telephone, that saves an ER visit. Uh, Blue Cross, Blue Shield of Connecticut, Connecticut Medicaid, they should be they should be driving patients to you that way instead of trying to break that chain. That's who knows what that's about, but the, but telemedicine is here to stay plan for it, make it better, invest in better mics, better, better cameras, a higher internet connection at all. And anywhere you might be doing it. Um, don't pretend it's going away because it's not. Another lesson we learned cash flow planning is vital. I was embarrassed by the state of pediatric practice management where so many doctors, so many practices, so many owners had already emptied their, their cash accounts a few weeks before because, you know, distributions happen as end of year, post taxes, and boom, COVID hits a month before April. A lot of people had already handed out all their money. Well, you need to do cash flow planning. Paul Vincieri my, I suppose, de facto partner in, on the COVID stuff. He has on the COVID website, on the webinar, on his own website. I have nothing to do with it. He has, he has put out a cash flow planning worksheet for every private practice. It's free. Take it. It's really, really important. I know a lot of practices got saved by those, um, by those, federal, uh, those federal loans and those federal grants. And we just, you have no excuse to go through that again. Save your money. All right, manage your money. Ch take a look at those. Um, take a look at those in immunization bills coming in. Um, make talk to your landlords. But cash flow planning is going to be really vital until we get over the COVID hump, and you're not going to make that mistake again because this is not the last international virus we're going to see in our lifetimes. All right, a couple, few more things. One of the silver linings of COVID is that the 2020 AAP is not the 1990, 1990 AAP. Oh my God, what a difference. It's not even the 2010 AAP. The AAP has stepped up for you in a way they have never stepped up in their in entire history. They released a few days after the election, an awesome set of documents about how, um, how the AAP plans to proceed in a Biden presidency. They released 
throughout the COVID crisis, they've released a constant set of well-written, well-designed, awesome documentation about how to manage through COVID. They released a CARES Act documentation. They have semi-released um, the, uh, uh, the um, um, information blocking uh, documentation. I just read a review of it today. They have been so active with um, helping you. And you have to remember, the AAP is not an organization that you just throw money at and they do stuff for you. The AAP is you. If you aren't happy with the response you're getting from the AAP, if you feel like the AAP is supposed to be doing something, raise your hand and volunteers. The overwhelming majority of work and content being delivered by the AAP is done by volunteers, by pediatricians. And it is incredibly important. Oh, I should have put the Connecticut chapter up here. Sorry, I, just, I didn't realize there was a chapter on this slide. Um, I just grabbed a logo when I slapped it in there. Anyway, the, um, my point is this. Right now, the AAP is delivering for you. Mark Del Monte is doing an insanely great job. Um, and and Anne Edwards and everyone else there, help out, volunteer. Many hands make light work. And um, I could not be more pleased as, as someone who isn't a member of the AAP. Um, I can't be. Um, I can't be more pleased with what they're doing for you and, and how much easier they're making my job. So um, help out there. Um, here's something else. Medicaid is coming. You are going to have, if you haven't already faced it, if you haven't already seen it, um, you're going to. But with so many people unemployed, you are going to be facing a tidal wave of Medicaid. And if it's not Medicaid, it's going to be a small tidal wave of people who need to pay cash. So if you don't take Medicaid, you stand the risk of losing 5 or 10% of your patient base for that reason alone. If you do take Medicaid, you stand to have your payer mix shift by 5 or 10%. Now, in my business, that's revolutionary. We could put COVID aside. I've, I would write entire blog series on what would happen if your payer shift goes from 5% Medicaid to 20% Medicaid, which is already happening in some places. That is analysis that's worth doing on its own. But this new little wrinkle of especially dual income families where one person loses insurance or loses their job, so they lose their insurance, but the other um, family member does not, or, and, or, and, but does not have insurance. And they make too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to pay for insurance. That hasn't happened since ARA. All right. I remember I was there. I can pull up all the email messages on the various mailing lists. Okay. When R was coming, everyone was scared about the Medicaid wave that was going to hit. I heard so much whining about how R was going to sink all these ships. It didn't, there was nothing. It didn't happen at all. I mean, I literally have billions of dollars of visit data to prove that R did not come in and wipe anyone out with all this low paying Medicaid volume. But those places where ARA happened, all right, are by um, all measures going to be healthier. Connecticut is one of them. Connecticut is Connecticut uh, participated, as we know. And so um, you are going to be facing, however, something we haven't seen since before ARA, which is an increase in direct patient payments. Right now, I, I, I just did this for the AAPNCE. Um, I did a retrospective in 1995. About, um, I'm trying to remember my numbers now. In 1995, about 25% of all the revenue that pediatricians generated came from directly from the patients themselves. I think it was actually higher. In 2020, that number is down to like 5%, 10%. Um, that number is going to go back up. And so you're going to be collecting from patients in a, in a way and again that you haven't before. Um, Another thing to realize, all medicine is local. All medicine is hyper-local. When, when we saw the slide of just a few minutes ago of um, Connecticut. Uh, uh, Chip, uh, this is yep. Dr. Salazar. Uh, we, we, need, we have uh, about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to yep. ask you to wrap up. Thank you. Yep, this is, uh, so here's my last slide then. You ready? Here it is. This is uh, Louis Pasteur, who should be a hero for everyone here. He had a very famous saying, which is, chance favors the prepared mind. All it is is that that's the nice way of saying, like the Boy Scouts say, be prepared. 
you cannot over-prepare right now. You cannot save enough money. You cannot have enough PPE. You cannot do enough planning for the future. COVID has shown us that. We've been surfing a wave for the last 20 years of how nice it is. The wave crashed. Everybody here needs to think about how they're going to maintain their businesses to serve the children in their communities in order for our entire country to be healthy. You have a really incredibly important job to do. If you do it well, you'll be very successful. But if you do it poorly, we all suffer. And that's, uh, that's an important lesson from COVID. So anyway, sorry, I went a little bit long, apparently. Um, that's it. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Chip. That was uh, this truly outstanding. Really appreciate the message and the, uh, the you know, giving the uh, cheers for the pediatricians. Uh, uh, and, and to them, uh, my hat's off. Uh, we have a number of questions. We're not going to be able to get through all of them. And uh, the, the first one is just a comment from Nilda. John, thank you for your service. Nilda Fernandez from our HIV program. Um, and then the, the first question is, can you explain, and, and we're going to have brief response to these. The, it's, it appears that the death rate is going down in general across the country for COVID. Can you explain that? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I think there are a number of explanations for that, and I'm not so sure it's going to go down in the upper Midwest as their ICUs filled up. So we know how to treat it better. We know steroids work. We know um, early antivirals. We know ICU care better. That's clearly having an impact. It's a younger population being infected, kids, young adults. They're less likely to have mortality. However, we know from the Italy experience and the New York experience, as ICUs fill up, as they are in that story in Montana today, they, they can't manage the patients. You start triaging and you lose patients. We know the death rate is going to go up in the next two to four weeks. It's a great question though. And unfortunately, I think it's fooling some of our leadership to think, ah, it's not a big deal. We are going to have more deaths in the coming weeks, unfortunately. Uh, from Leon Kamides, uh, since the efficacy of the vaccine is done by a double-blind study, how can Pfizer or any company um, come up with a number like 90%? So maybe you can go over the DSMB and how they do that. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, they didn't show any data, but what they do is they've looked at this particular study was randomized controlled. Uh, I think it was 40,000 people, and they show the number of cases of uh, uh, people who were immunized who got, they broke the code, who got sick and those who didn't, and it was 90% efficacy. Um, I'm sort of in the show me the data, okay? And I think it'll be good. I look forward to seeing it. Probably shouldn't say any more than that. I know the data will be forthcoming. Dr. Salas and I, and I will look at it carefully. And we will share that data with our community and our providers as soon as we can get it. Great, thanks. Uh, Chip, a question for you. Uh, are there still resource, financial resources from the government available for pediatricians that they can tap into? Oh, great question. So yes, there is a third round of CARES Act uh, funding. Um, it's on a first come first serve basis. We don't know how much anyone's going to get because it's uh, at max, you might get up to 2% of your revenue, which is a week's worth of revenue. That's certainly something. And it no longer requires that you serve uh, Medicaid or CHIP children. Um, it's very easy to apply, and I'm just going to, after that, we have no idea. Clearly, the present administration is um, not running on all cylinders, and I doubt they're going to put something together before now at the end of the year, but hopefully something will happen in January. And then a follow-up question for you. Uh, you know, pedi the, the, the era of the solo practice pediatrician, is that uh, disappearing with post-COVID, or what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely not. I will tell you right now in 2020 or in the last 12 months, half of the practices the company I work for has put online have been startup solo practices. There's a, an explosion of startup solo practices. I have a lot, of, lot to say about that. I'll spare everyone, but it is exploding. And at the next webinar we're doing, Polly and I had to choose from about a dozen practices we were going to interview specifically who opened up practices during COVID. There are huge swaths of the country where there are not enough pediatricians. All right. There, it might not be down in Westport. Okay. But the rest of the country needs pediatricians. So no, there's massive independent pediatric growth, even for solos. Great. Thank you. Um, John from Kerry Strine. Thank you again for this very important weekly educational forum. Uh, I understand that the quest quest is starting to get overwhelmed again with PCR tests. That's correct. But the length of time is the return the, the, the response uh, time is, is longer. We have been advised to save the PCR test for those with a high suspicion of COVID and use the Abbott ID only for all others' comments. 
Uh, you know, the quest is getting backed up. Uh, we're lucky at Connecticut Children's. We have multiple platforms that we're using to try to move things forward in an expeditious time frame, particularly for patients we're admitting. So I, I do think it's a reasonable plan. Um, the ID now by Abbott, as you saw the data, it's not as sensitive as lab-based PCR, but it does detect a certain number of um, RNA copies, and I think it would be a useful screening. If it's positive, you can be assured that patient has COVID or it has positive RNA in their excretions. I think if it's negative, that's where you're going to worry a little bit that it could be a false negative. I do think it has a role, and it has a role particularly as Quest and other labs become overwhelmed in the coming weeks. It's a good question. And, uh, and a common question from uh, Dr. Lau. Uh, John, I understand until we see the actual data, we can't comment too much about the results. But knowing that in the Pfizer trial of greater than 40,000 volunteers, there was a total of, of 90 infections, less than 0.25% infectivity, suggesting that the study population was skewed towards those that have been using their own methods of protection, which is not surprising, since we expect those who participate to be more motivated. However, despite the small numbers, it would still suggest that the vaccine provides real protection further from the personal protection. That's a good comment. I agree. I think the vaccine is extremely promising, but our job, remember, for our community, and actually Chip gave a great talk, our job is going to be to interpret those data and make sure our community has confidence in the vaccine, and we intend to do that. Uh, for you, uh, what can pediatricians do uh, <laughs> with their community to try to get them to wear masks? Is there something specific that maybe a couple of things that you can share with us that maybe helps pediatricians? Did we lose him? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't think that question was for me. <laughs> is, is that, yeah, that was sorry. for you. No, that yeah. was for you. Motivation oh, for We want to give you only the easy oh, one. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I was like, oh, well, I will tell you my initial reaction is like, oh, my gosh, if I can answer that, maybe I could be named to the next cabinet. But no, it's impossible. All you can do is establish your um, authority with the lowercase a. All right. And that is you are experts on this stuff. You live and breathe and and and. Um, you're consumed by the science of this. And, and um, so you've got to stay strong with your authority. Look, nothing is more important to me than keeping people safe and adhering to science. So this is what I believe right now based on my evidence. And the other thing that you're, uh, that you're doing really well, I'm, I'm impressed, is you have to do it by leading by example. Here you have your speaker at a lectern. I bet no one's within 30 feet of you you got your mask right there. You came in wearing a mask. That's the stuff that un that makes a difference. So uh, that's my, you know, wear your mask in public. Explain to people how uh, mask wearing is important. You should have a sign on your front door that says, do not come in my, my space without your mask on. And you got to adhere to it. It's hard work. But uh, I suppose the one thing I would compare it to, every, every, everyone who treats children on this call knows uh, the book, One, Two, Three Magic. All right. That's <laughs> it. It. Pretty, it works pretty well. You've got to, um, you've got to live the, the story that you're trying to have your parents um, uh, live as well. So you tell them, if you don't wear a mask, here's your consequence as it relates to me. That's the best I can do. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, there, there's a comment, and, I, and, I, and I, I love this comment. This is from Nelson Walker. Not a question, but a comment. Outstanding presentations. Uh, reminder, the board-certified family physicians are trained to do preventative health care of all ages, including pediatrics. We're partners in pediatric care with our pediatricians, especially, um, but also as a community level with our primary care pediatricians. I couldn't agree with with you more. I mean, we are partners. Uh, so, Chip, a comment on uh, on the work you've been doing with family family. Practice. Yeah, I, I I was in the middle of actually typing a response to that, and and I'm sorry if I said that or implied otherwise. Family family physicians are clearly important important partners, not even threats or competitors, but important partners to. Um, keeping kids healthy in this country here. I mean, frankly, you know, you're one of the few other specialties who gets it. <laughs> and in my, and again, I'm, I'm very biased, but um, no, no, without FPs, uh, there are many communities who would be uh, in, in horrible shape, not only just for children, but for, for families that the F in FP is incredibly important. So yeah, I know if I implied that uh, if I know it didn't, if I didn't put FPs under my umbrella, my apologies, I'm just used to um, addressing very pediatric uh, organizations. So forgive me. For I that. do want to add to that, Chip. Um, you know, family medicine in large parts of the country, I was just in Wisconsin in my previous uh, job that I retired from, family medicine is all there is. 
Uh, there right. are not pediatricians in large, vast areas of Wisconsin, for example. So thank you for bringing that up from the community. We appreciate yeah, yeah. it. You're absolutely I appreciate a great it. partnership. Great. Uh, it's it's 9.01. Uh, unfortunately, we have at least 10 other questions. I, I will hope that John and Chip will be able to answer them online. They're all fantastic questions. I really appreciate it. We had over 160 people in this uh, webinar. As always, uh, a great presentation, John and Chip. That was amazing. We'll get you back hopefully soon to share some additional details. So again, well, everyone, uh, my recommendation is uh, stay safe, wear your mask, model the behavior so everyone else can follow. And we will see you again uh, on Tuesday for Grand Rounds and then again a week from uh, today for the ne next session uh, with uh, Shriver and Company, I guess we're going to call it that. And uh, call <laughs> us in. All right, Chip, take care. John, thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. Bye -bye. All right, bye-bye.